everybody. Welcome back to The Big Show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. And as always, we are your host, Pastors Christopher Gillespie. I'm a singular pastor, but yes. And I'm I am here. Donovan Riley. <laughs> Thanks for just blocking me out. Well, right now you're kind of, what? That was the editorial pastors, the royal we. <laughs> oh, I see. I got you. <laughs> you're not quite checked out. You're, you're getting ready to check back in. I am getting ready to check back in. I've got one more week on sabbatical, capped off by, of all things, I have a competition Sunday. So the day before I go back to work, I hopefully will be uh, able by the end of the day to actually go back to work, physically go back. <laughs> physically able to like walk. <laughs> I will be competing not only against higher belts, but also against some people who are three times younger than I am. Yeah. Which is a strange thing to consider because there's some 19-year-olds that I mentor, that I train with, and I'll be competing against them on Sunday. What's wrong with a little humility? A big fat tablespoon, <laughs> a dollop of humility. <laughs> Hopefully divorced from any actual physical pain or injury. But I don't know. I stepped away for a little while uh, from, you know, my, I guess, proper work vocationally mm -hmm. outside of husband and father. And uh, coming back, you know, I was kind of energized. I was ready to go. Right. You know. And I had a different perspective. The things that I used to care about, well, I didn't care about it quite as much anymore. Right. No, that's why I took a sabbatical in, is to give the congregation a break for me after almost 11 years and mm -hmm. for me to take a break from them for the summer and then come back and do kind of, like you said, a soft reset, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Just see, oh, that was a priority for me before, but now that I've stepped back and get some objectivity, right? Right, right. and for the congregation side of things too, to be able to say, hey, you know what? We didn't really appreciate this, but mm. now we do. Or we thought about this in your absence and maybe we could do less of that or emphasize this a little bit more. Yeah, but this is what matters to us now. We, right. we see it. Yeah. We, yeah. yeah. So, and to everyone who's listening to this, you are now through the conference season. So thank you to everyone who attended conferences this summer. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Hope it was uplifting, encouraging for all of you. I did and two tours of duty. You did. Mm -hmm. Where were you at? You were at Mequon and? Chicago. And Chicago, that's right. Yeah, I took youth to Chicago and then uh, just worked Mequon. So awesome. Mequon was fun. It's by the lake. It was miserable hot, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been a very strange summer in the upper Midwest. That's true. For that's weather. That's true. That's true. So the show took a little hiatus there, at least a week it off, did. right? Right. Which then brings us to this episode where we're going to wrap up essentially our summer long series on Lincoln's Lucky Commons. Yeah, it turned into that, didn't it? It did. It's been good stuff. I hope you've benefited from it as much as we have in reading and, and revisiting it. So we thought today then to wrap up this whole series, we would go to page 117 in the Ichthus edition, the Christian Classics Library. You can find this on Amazon, of course. It's the um, volume labeled Melanchthon and Booser editor, Wilhelm Pauch. Linked and, in the show notes. Yes. And in this section then, beginning on page 117, Philip summarizes by theses essentially his arguments for law and gospel that we read through in brief but we probably touched on 10 percent of what he wrote <laughs> so definitely if you were interested or provoked by anything that we read or said definitely go buy the book and read everything that he has to to write or to say on this and i know we said it um but you know what's been really I don't know, encouraging maybe that, that Melanchthon here is very, very readable in the same yes. way he is in, say, the uh, the Augsburg Confession. Mm -hmm. you know, just the clarity, uh, conciseness of words, but, but, but saying enough too. Right. Yeah. 
I was having a conversation with my wife, and I think you and I probably talked about this also, but uh, I'll make an analogy and then come back to Melanchthon. Something that my wife and I, because we both have a background in music and music performance, you'll notice there are certain musicians, for example, who are so talented that they actually make you think that you can go and do that thing. So for example, <laughs> Chris Stapleton, yeah. right? When you listen to Chris Stapleton sing, you end up saying to yourself, I think I could sing. That's how good he is. He actually inspires you to want to go and sing. He makes it look easy. Right. And when you read the Lochi, Philip's so good in the Lochi, he actually makes you think you can go write your own Lochi. <laughs> or at the very least, just write a theological treatise on long gospel, for example, which I kind of did. <laughs> sure. Coming out August 1st, Crucifying Religion, available on Amazon. I'll right, link it up. There we go. So the point being though, is it is so readable and he is so clear and sober in his exegesis, in his formulation of these confessions of our doctrine, that in reading it, you walk away saying to yourself, oh yeah, I can do this. I can say this. I can explain it this way. Hmm. And that was one of the things I know we talked about, uh, Melanchthon being what, an autodidact, I think. Yeah, right. A good word for it, where he, he, he does have a natural gift of assimilating knowledge and, and then communicating it, you know, assembling right. it into an orderly, you know, confession that <laughs> uh, it makes it look easy. And I'm not so sure it is. Well, we would say he's a left brain, right brain guy at the same time, whereas so many people are either very analytical or very intuitive. They're either very much... Is that is that what a, like a genius level intellect is? Right. That he is not only able to recognize patterns, and but he's also able then to organize those patterns into this idea relates to this idea, this doctrine relates to this doctrine, this conversation over here relates to this debate back there. Yeah. He's able to take all of that and almost, his brain's almost like an aggregator for information. It's kind of like Stephen Hawking talking about astrophysics. Sure. Like, right. How does he actually communicate this in a way that I think I, I think I understand what he's talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he does, you know, you have that gift. Well, actually, to your point, you brought it up. It's kind of interesting that the brief history of the time was one of two or three books that I had read when I was 23 that actually convinced me there's a God. Which I don't know if that was his goal. Definitely but, not, but he did a great job of explaining physics and astrophysics to me, and therefore I was like, well, this is so much bigger than I had ever considered regarding life, the universe, mm -hmm. and everything. This can't just be a random set of accidents. Yeah, that's the deus ex machina, right? Yeah. That, that uh, you speak, you show so much eloquence and order and, or even chaos, but chaos mm -hmm. being brought into order, uh, you communicate that so well that it, it begs that question. Right, it uh, literally made me question my existence. There must be a hand or, or right. something right. guiding this action. This yeah. is, because you don't see, uh, you know, chaos moving into order, you see order moving into chaos. Chaos. Throughout right. society. Mm. So let's dive into this then. Let us bring this whole discussion of law, gospel, and faith together under several theses. That's how he sets this off. And this, as I said, is essentially at the end of the section on love and hope, before he gets into the difference between Old and New Testaments. So this is page 117. Thesis number one, the law is the doctrine that commands what is and what is not to be done. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Correct. Very simple. Thesis two, the gospel is the promise of the grace of God. We love these short, but oh, right? poignant definitions. Can you imagine if these had been given to us the first semester of seminary? And we were told, memorize these theses. 
Yeah, and that uh, confusion law gospel, you know, is 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 easily diagnosed when you have these sorts of definitions. You see, exactly. Oh, right. oh, the go- the gospel is, you know, the freedom to um, live, you know, according to God's law. Right. Like, mm, Which would right? make a lot of sense, except for thesis number three: <laughs> the law demands impossible <laughs> things, such as the love of God and our neighbor, cited from Romans chapter eight. Yeah, in case you didn't know where that comes from, yeah, Romans chapter 8. Right. That it is impossible to love God or love your neighbor by the law. The law right. is powerless to give what it demands. What it demands, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you have the law is the doctrine that commands what is and what is not to be done. The gospel is the promise of the grace of God. And the law demands impossible things such as the love of God and our neighbor. So then thesis four, those who try to keep the law by their natural powers or free will simulate only the external works. They do not give expression to those attitudes which the law demands. So it's not out of the heart, it's out right. of uh, obligation, duty, responsibility. Right. Luther talks about this at length, and I think his Galatians, his later Galatians lectures of, yeah, lots of people, even pagans can do what the law demands outwardly, but they don't do it spontaneously from their heart. They don't do it out of selfless love. Mm. And that's the key is for both Martin and Philip, it is... Oh, you do the works of the law. Do you do them selflessly? Mm-hmm. Are they spontaneous or are they premeditated? When you do them, do you expect something in return? And for both of them, the answer is, well, that's impossible. Which then what puts some flesh on Jesus's accusation, especially against Pharisees, but you know the, the ap- accusation of hypocrite, right? You yes. don't pray at the street corners uh, so that you can be seen by other men. That's right. that, that is that simulation of good works. It's not... Right. It's not done out of the heart. It's done for praise or. Oh, um, do you? Are you referring to thesis five? <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, they do not satisfy the law, but they are hypocrites, whitewashed right. tombs, as Christ calls them in Matthew twenty-three, verse twenty-seven. Galatians three, verse ten says, "For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse." Right, and maybe one of the challenges there is that. People say, well, then you're saying that that works, because works don't justify, next thesis. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're following Melanchthon's argument here. Uh, That then works are excluded. Like, Mm -hmm. like, well, yes, excluded from salvation, but that's not the nature of the conversation here. We're not talking about whether or not um, one should perform works according to the law. Right. Well, and this goes, we were talking before we hit record, uh, the quote that I sent you from John Steinbeck, which I think perfectly sums up law and gospel, which is, mm. now that we're free from having to be perfect, we can be good. Yeah. Is that the law demands we be perfect, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. The old Adam hears that and says, all right, I'll get to work. The new man in Christ hears that and says, oh, you're going to do that, right? Because I can't. Mm. It only looks to Christ for its works. Thus, in Ephesians, that we are predestined to walk in these good works. That is, God laid these works out for us before the foundation of the world. So, we don't have to go out and find our good works. Mm-hmm. He's already laid them out for us to do, which is either deeply comforting or deeply troubling, depending on how you approach the whole matter of works. Well, this thesis four about the simulation of external works versus you know, the expression of an attitude, uh, which we already have, yeah. is to show that uh, works are not, they don't benefit you. <laughs> In relation to Christ. Yeah. And we like to think that like, if I do this thing, it's going to come back to benefit me. I think you were talking about that on uh, one of your other podcasts where, you know, we'll do things, um, but only if it benefits us, if it comes back, right. like pay it forward. Well, we're going to mm-hmm. pay it forward and then that's going to come back around like karma or something. 
you know, and that's not the nature of works. That's not the nature of the law. The law is there to benefit your neighbor. Right. And if you read both Eastern and Western philosophies of, of virtue ethics or codes of conduct, both East and West, the code of the Bushido, the code of the, the samurai, the code of the warrior, or you look to the West, both the code of chivalry in the Middle Ages for those knights, but also going back to Cyrus the Persian, as recorded by Xenophon, the ultimate goal of life is to be benevolent in the way of selfless love. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that the purpose of life is to be a good person for your neighbor, specifically to be selfless in your love for your neighbor. I think you see that, you know, my parents were in the Peace Corps and there's there's other kinds of, what, public service organizations. Sure, AmeriCorps, Red yeah, Cross. Yeah, like if you're a doctor or a nurse or something, where you can go and basically volunteer and and serve those. And I think the goal there is you're trying to, probably trying to find some sense of fulfillment, self-fulfillment. Right. You know, or purpose of, of, and you know, do you want it to benefit you in some way? I suppose you probably still do. You can't avoid that. Why would you do it if it doesn't? Right, but but through that sacrifice, then learning um, mm -hmm. learning to love others more than oneself. Right. That's that is uh, that's natural law. That's that's natural it religion. Yeah. I call it being selfishly unselfish, meaning I'm doing this, hmm. and it is benefiting me. That otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. And mm -hmm. I, by nature, and I am by nature incapable of doing anything selflessly. Everything <laughs> we do, whether good or bad, is done for selfish motives or selfish reasons. However. If I can say I'm going to do this to better myself so that I can be better for my wife, my children, my congregation, my neighbors. Vocationally. Mm. Right. It doesn't negate the fact that I'm being selfish. It's just a benevolent selfishness rather than I'm doing this for myself and I don't care who I hurt, which would be a more malignant selfishness or malicious selfishness. So that's, that's the whitewashed tomb. That's the, yeah, right. that's the uh, priest that walks by the guy in the ditch. It's like you're, you're mm -hmm. obeying this law, which... You know, of ritual purification, right? Um, you can't touch a man who's dying or dead. Mm -hmm. I get that, <laughs> but you're right. actually neglecting him in the process, and the law right. needs to be set aside for the sake of your neighbor. Or like the, the what the uh, oxen that falls into the pit on the right. Sabbath, right? And they say, well, you know, slavishly obedient to the third commandment, um, but to neglect your oxen. I mean, even your oxen, not even like if it was your son, but <laughs> just an animal. Right. No, none of you are going to do that. You right. know better than that, that. That's not the purpose of the law. Right. Well, to that point too, I was just reading this again in another philosopher this morning, that if you go out looking for freedom, you will become a slave to your desires. Mm. But if you exercise discipline, you will discover true freedom. So essentially, well, it comes out of Aristotle originally, but the Stoics embraced it also, is that in the search for liberation from natural law, we would call it, or just earthly desires, mm -hmm. compulsions, so forth, cravings. Passions, yeah. Passions. You actually become a slave to them <laughs> versus if you live a life of discipline, there's freedom within that discipline, which Jocko Willink didn't invent. It actually comes from Aristotle and he just kind of remixed it for a 21st century audience. Sure. But this is the point then is that the hypocrites think by essentially attempting to uh, to enslave their passions, their desires, their cravings through the word of law, they're truly free. Isn't this how Paul handles uh, like what we would today call mandatory celibacy? But he says, look, yes. if you can't, if you have lust, which he mm -hmm. kind of presumes that you will, um, with the rare exception of uh, those who can live a celibate life, if you lust, then marry. That's where it goes. Right. 
right? So, and that's a, it's a way of disciplining the lust. <laughs> right. Is to give that to your wife. But that is not thereby a Christian or godly work. That is simply a work that is available to all people. Yeah, there because are, marriage is being, is, is relatively universal. Right. There are plenty of non-Christians who will tell you that chastity is good mm. for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's not specific. And therefore, to say all who rely on works of the law are under a curse would be, I think, the bridge, though, that we as Christians would confess between the works of the law and the gospel or the promise. Yeah, there's no freedom in that. Right. Hmm. There's freedom in a left-handed kingdom sort of way. There's a freedom in a first article sort of way. That is a freedom from, let's say, justice and retribution Mm -hmm. and punishment, freedom from being in conflict with your neighbor, domestic Right, like we were talking about marriage, like, yeah, you can look at, you could even look at the scriptures for this. Yeah, you take two wives, it's right. not going to go so well. No. Are you going to have relations really with your slave girl? Hmm. Right. It, it exactly. Kinda, it causes some problems. You don't yeah. have to read that far in the Bible. It's actually pretty easy to find the groundwork for why this is a bad idea. Mon- why monogamy probably is the wisest course of action. Right, for exactly. Folks. <laughs> right. It's not like in Genesis 2, God said, well, I can't find a suitable helper, so... I'll just have like a beauty pageant of different kinds of women for Adam to choose from. And Mm. the other ones can be his concubines. No, like there's one for one, flesh of flesh, bone of bone. Yeah, and he got the woman he needed probably too. 100% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) So thus, thesis six, it is not the function of the law to justify. Meaning to, I know we defined this before, but it's worth defining again. Forgive our sins. Yeah, to make one right with God. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, one, the doctrine commands what is and what is not to be done. The gospel is the promise of God's grace, which as we covered in the previous episode, grace is simply nothing more than the forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name. Yeah, he defined it that way. Which also includes holiness, by the way. Because to be declared forgiven is also then simultaneously to be made, or I'm sorry, not made, to be declared holy or sanctified. Declared holy, not holy in a sense of obedience. In ourselves, exactly. That's why I want to correct myself. He doesn't make us holy in the sense of, oh, ta-da, it's like Shazam. We watched Shazam last night. Kids loved it. But it's not like God says, you're forgiven, and then Shazam, I'm holy. <laughs> well, think about how Paul says all our works are, are filthy menstrual rags. Right. Well, then how is anything holy? Right. Through the forgiveness of sins. Through forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is a powerful analogy, not to go too deep into it, but he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So basically, he's talking about a bloody mess, a sign of the curse, a sign of Genesis 3, and then says the blood of Christ actually does the opposite of this stuff over here. It cleanses. It actually covers and cleanses and forgives sin. Mm-hmm. So the one means got to leave the camp, can't come back into the camp until you're ritually pure again. This blood of Christ actually brings you not only into the camp, it brings you right into the holy of holies. It's a big bloody mess. It is. But a good one. <laughs> so then those who try to keep the law by their natural powers or, uh, or free will simulate only external works. It's a simulation. They don't give expression to those attitudes which the law demands. We call that what, civic righteousness? Yeah, civic righteousness. There we go. Yeah, we can curb and restrain, but we can't. The mirror of the law that drives us to Christ. Well, you can even do good things like, oh, I don't know, malaria tents in Africa. 100%. That's yeah. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like Marcus Aurelius says, what's the purpose of life? Be a good person and help other people. Yeah. we can Law. Natural law. That's humanitarianism, I think, as yes, well. Yes, that's why we call it humanitarianism. Then they do not satisfy the law, but they're hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, as Christ calls them, because all who rely on the works of the law are under curse. Therefore, it is not the function of the law to justify. Good. So then turning the page now to thesis seven, the proper function of the law is to reveal sin and especially to confound the conscience. 
That's a key point before I, uh, well, mm-hmm. Romans 3.20 then, through the law comes knowledge of sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. This one right here, that the proper function of the law is to confound the conscience. <laughs> what, not clear it, clear it up? Make it easy? Right. And also note that word proper. I mean, I know we probably could argue with the use of the word function, which makes it sound like the law is just like some kind of tool. But it's mm-hmm. that's not it. The law actually has its has its work. Right. It's if, yeah. I see function. I just don't. Well, I think in the present tense, it makes it sound mechanical or something. My argument would be, I would argue that both Philip and Luther and the reformers understand this is all the work of the Spirit. Mm, right. Right, the, like the whole term use or usus. Mm-hmm. Is, it's the uses of the spirit in relation to the law and gospel. The spirit uses the law in right. this way, yeah. So the spirit uses God's word of law, the spirit uses God's word of gospel in the way of tool. Mm. Here are these Instrument. tools. Instrument, yeah. Instrument, thank you, yes. So the proper instrumentation or use of God's word of law is one, to reveal sin, and, and second, to confound the conscience. And note to the word proper, uh, what he's saying there, along with Paul, is that yes, the law can be used in other ways, by mm-hmm. the Spirit or by you, <laughs> right? Um, but it's it's what God-given use, or right. it's primary, proper. This is what it's here for. I would not, like, we distinguish here also between first article kinds of grace, God mm-hmm. makes the sun and the rain to fall on both the good and the wicked yeah. alike, Yeah. but then second article, grace, which is very specific, forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name. Third article, grace, it's the gifts, it's the proclamation of the gospel, it's, it's the, the daily forgiveness and so forth, resurrection of the dead. Here he's saying, listen, this, and I think this is key too, we actually don't know naturally that we're sinful and therefore need a savior. So it's not just that the law says you need Jesus. The backspin of that is there is a reason you mm-hmm. need Jesus. Mm-hmm. So this is why Aristotle, Plato, Cicero, they have no word for sin. Because they, they do recognize that things are, um, how, how do sometimes in people, other words that people use to, as an analogy for sin, oh, broken, right? That we're mm. broken. Well, yeah, broken in psycho, psychotherapeutic language. We're yeah, broken. that we're broken or that we're messed up or uh, that right. everyone knows that. Or we're just insufficient or we're not quite there mm-hmm. yet, right? We have, we have right. room to grow. All that kind of language. That's not what sin is. Sin is, mm-hmm. the, is the absolute, what, captivity, uh, that we're captive to death. That, right, that we treat God as enemy. So the condition is far worse, as revealed right. by God's law, than right. what we could naturally know. Right. You're messed up? Oh, you're going to go to hell. That's how messed up you are. Well, there's no, there are Christians who would say that we can't actually make that confession of hell. Right. But, and, but where does that leave you then? <laughs> Or, or that creeds. we can't, yeah. Well, you're just kind of caught in this gray area. <laughs> Therefore, cut off from the entire historical confession of the church. Well, there's that too. <laughs> little, little niggling detail. Mm. But nonetheless, I think that is such. Again, like we talked about in, in the opening, every one of these theses is something that you could talk about for an entire podcast. Confounding conscience. So, does that mean confusing the conscience? Confound to yeah, essentially leave you dumb. To stop all mouths? Well, think of it. He means conscience in a pre-modern sense, and I brought this up in the past, but it's worth repeating. He doesn't mean Jiminy Cricket or an angel and a devil on your shoulders trying to argue you one way or the other. Again, like Shazam, right? Mm. The opening of the movie. If you have a pure heart, you won't choose the eye and the seven deadly sins. And if you don't have a pure heart, then you're going to choose the eye. And of course, everybody wants to choose the eye. But the point being then is that in the modern sense, conscience is 
good and evil battling for control of your free will. In a pre-modern sense, conscience is your sense of standing in relationship to God and your neighbors. Mm. It's a relational word. So basically, what I would argue he's saying is, to confound the conscience means, I treat God as an enemy rather than as a loving father, and I treat my neighbor as a burden and a curse rather than a gift. So it shows you that um, you don't love God as much as you think you do, and the same goes for, you don't trust God as much as you think you do, but you also don't love your neighbor like you also think you are. You you think you're doing it, you're getting there, and then the law comes along and says, Actually, you're more sinful than when you started. You're actually worse, because now you're boasting, you're proud. Right. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Therefore, the more that you attempt to justify yourself in God's sight through the law, the more sinful you'll actually be declared. Ooh. So it actually gets worse. The law increases trespasses. So what, and to your point then, what we would argue is a godly virtue or a godly work, the Holy Spirit comes and preaches the law and says, actually, you're even more damnable now than when you started. (laughs) Like the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Right, look at me. Yeah. So then eight, to a conscience acknowledging sin and confounded by the law, the gospel reveals Christ. Lord, to whom shall we go? Right. Thesis nine then, thus John reveals Christ at the very time he preaches repentance. Quote, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter one, verse 29. Law gospel, right? There you go. Thesis 10, the faith by which we believe the gospel, showing us Christ, and by which Christ is received as the one who has placated the Father and through whom grace is given, this faith is our righteousness. John chapter 1, verse 12, quote, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Placated the Father. That's a right? wonderful turn of phrase. Yes. You know, there's, Pacified. There's that uh, modern criticism, I can't remember who... I don't know if anybody actually makes it as much as they were, but from the New Atheists, remember? Where they yes. would say that the, it was divine child abuse. Yes. That God the Father would give his son into death. Mm-hmm. And it, But uh, the con- essential confession, Isaiah makes this confession that that he does it willingly. That he, right. He, you know, and Jesus himself says, you know, I, I lay down my life and I can take it up again. This is right. not... Um, th- this is not an abusive relationship. This is actually the love of the Father and the Son together for all man. Right. I think this is also, you see this in the 20th century, especially mid to late 20th century, that the people that really don't comprehend the atonement, Mm. this is where they they run afoul. And you see this with Christians then, not just the new atheists, of of Christians who are what we would refer to as kind of liberal or revisionist Christians when it comes to the Bible and its teachings, or just theology historically, is divine child abuse, that God is abusing his son so that he can save us from hell, but he loves us. So, what, is, what does that mean? Versus, mm. as you note then, no, Jesus says, I do this. That that he and the Father act of unity of, of spirit yes. that, right. that, and of will, that this is in the mind of God. Now, we're getting into the doctrine of Trinity a little bit, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, gets perhaps confusing. Right. But at the same time, you say, no, Jesus has the love of the Father. He and the Father are one, he says. Right. Right. And so the father loves us to give his son to die for us. The son mm-hmm. loves us to lay down his life for us. It, it's collaborative, right. cooperative. Yeah. Well, this is <laughs> Philippians 2. One of the earliest Christian creeds, as recorded in Philippians 2, is that he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped onto, but rather essentially set it down, gave it up. Mm-hmm. 
So if you ever wonder, why does Jesus do what he does and always talk about, why well, I have to ask the Father? Because he gave up all godly authority. Mm, true. doesn't mean he's not God. It just means he simply chose to give it up. But there is some, so there is some, what, divine mystery there, I guess is what we call it. Right. Yeah, how can the word of God come out of the Jordan River and yet God speak from the heavens? Mm. Yeah, and the word that spoke by the angel conceived mm-hmm. the word. Right. Oh, okay. Right. Again, this would, we would definitely file this under the category of mystery. <laughs> the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the Trinity. But the, the reality is, you know, the law demands um, death, sacrifice, yes. death, wrath, mm-hmm. if you like. Right. And that's what the what Christ placates from the mm-hmm. Father. He suffers right. that wrath, that judgment that the law right. demands. Through, through the law comes knowledge of sin, and the, the wages of sin are death. To preach sin, to preach the law, and therefore arouse knowledge of sin, is to simultaneously preach death. Mm. In fact, I would argue, based on Lincoln's argument here, you can't preach one without the other. They occur simultaneous. So what is righteousness? Uh, in Jesus, it mm-hmm. is dying for sin. Yes. It's actually suffering what is deserved for sin. Right, right. Uh, in our place, as our proxy, mm-hmm. our propitiation or mercy seat. So God is God is just and the justifier of the one who believes in him. Yes. He, he keeps his word. When he says the wages of sin mm-hmm. is death, that, ha- that will happen. That does happen. Right. He doesn't right. set it aside. It's not like it's it's a threat. It's like parenting, right? Where you make threats and you never follow through. Right. They don't really help much, actually. Well, it's because you actually end up punishing yourself worse than punishing your children. <laughs> I just made it worse. <laughs> yes. You can't watch TV today. Oh, wait. <laughs> no. Yes. Made a terrible decision. Mm. So then thesis 11. If it is actually faith alone that justifies, there is clearly no regard for our merits or our works, but only for the merits of Christ. Notice also how Philip, especially early on here, he mimics the language of Paul with these exclusive exclusive particles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, only, none, never. But he's also uh, not aping, but re, oh, I don't know, rephrase, taking, taking the term that Rome would use and using it in its proper way correct redefining that yes yeah so merits for example mm-hmm. they, they have lots of talks of merits in right. the Roman condign church. merits what's the other one condign and congruent merits mm-hmm. yeah yeah he takes these terms that, and here it's no it's the merits of christ our merit right. our works merit yes. nothing no regard for our merits or works only the merits of christ so then thesis 12 this faith calms and gladdens the heart Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace. Peace with God. That's the only way too, yes. right? To actually be at peace with God and man is to be forgiven in Jesus. Right. That's what I was going to say. We have peace with God and we have peace with ourselves. We can have peace with one another too. I mean, yeah. you know, can you forgive apart from that forgiveness you've been given right. in Jesus? Well, this is a key point, actually, since you brought it out too, is to, to enjoy peace is not to enjoy a kind of slappy, happy relationship now. Oh, well, we're at peace with each other, so we love it. No, look at- Or even a stalemate. Right, right. It's look at peace between two villages or two tribes or two families or two countries. Do they still not like or trust each other? 100%. We're agreeing not to kill each other for a time. Right, exactly. Like the holidays for many families. <laughs> uh, I thought it was I thought it was all the cheesy 70s pop songs about peace on earth. Oh, well. Right, how'd that work out? <laughs> so then 
the result, there's thesis 13 then, the result of faith is that for such a great blessing, the forgiveness of sins because of Christ, we love God in return. Therefore, love for God is a fruit of faith. It's the result of faith. Ugh, this should be written down and put in a wall plaque and hung on in the living room or kitchen of every family who's a well, Christian. Well, I mean, I've heard it said that, you know, in, it's not intentionally, but it's thought fruit is something that you can do. Right, absolutely, because that's what fruit trees do. The fruit just decides when it's going to grow. That's that's right. They say in the spring, it's time to bear right. fruit. That's why I have apple trees that are growing oranges this year, because the fruit decided, yeah, we're going to go with orange this year. <laughs> it's like a we're gonna mix trans it up. fruitism. I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I self-identify as an orange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah, this goes back to my point, too, that God laid out our good works for us before the foundation of the world so that mm -hmm. we may walk in them. Yeah, he forgives you, he redeems you, he makes you his own. Right. That you would bear the fruits that he's prepared right. for you to prepare. Does the potter, does the clay say to the potter, yeah, I'd rather be a plate? I think the no. Bible has a few analogies about this. A few. Does the dumb beast say to its rider, I think we're going to trot instead of gallop? No. How about That's this, this ditch works. or that ditch? Right, exactly. <laughs> so the fruit of faith, which of course disturbs us, disturbs the old Adam because we want to be able to choose our fruit. Lord, I love thee with all my heart. Right, because if my fruit looks an awful lot like my non-Christian neighbor's fruit, how can I know whether or not I'm, you know, I'm heaven-directed, mm. and my neighbor, he can't be going to heaven, but we work at the same job, and we do the same, we work for the same charitable organization, mm. we're both doing good works, but I'm a Christian, so therefore, my works for this charitable organization must be godly, and his ungodly, right? Yeah. No, wrong, actually. I think we talked about that in regards to the law. Uh, that, you know, what distinguishes a, a Christian um, following the law as a fruit of faith mm -hmm. from, I don't know, just a righteous pagan who who does right. seems to do the same. What's the distinction? We talked about that in regards to, Rome would actually say the righteous pagan is meriting um, yes. God's favor because they they look like us. Right. They're, they're doing good stuff like we're doing good stuff. And here Melanchthon's saying, along with Romans, right? three and five that's mm -hmm. excluded that's not the point at all actually right. if you look even as righteous as your neighbor pagan that's a gift of faith right in jesus and as one theologian said if you can recognize and enumerate your good works they're actually probably deadly sins Ooh, because you're taking credit for the work of the spirit and so maybe that's a helpful explanation then for folks who get upset with our churches that speak forgiveness of sins from beginning to end, every time we gather, it's mm -hmm. always forgiveness of sins in Jesus. It's always Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Behold the Lamb of God. That's the language of of our churches. And they say, well, well, what about my works? They'll come. Right. Go worry about baptism. It. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Jesus has got you. He'll take care of it. We were talking about this before we went on air real briefly that we, we just, in my opinion, we don't do enough to catechize the two kingdoms and mm. distinguishing between the two kingdoms, that in your vocation, which is a law office, there is no distinction between you and your pagan neighbors as far as whether it's good, bad, helpful, be faithful, unhelpful. Be faithful, be honorable. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But rather, in relation to Christ, number one, you don't focus on your works. You focus on Christ. And you live in your baptism, and whatever vocation you are given to do, that is the vocation that you have been given to do. Mm-hmm. As one, as one philosopher said, try hard, be honest, help your neighbor. That's it. That's the purpose of life. 
Right. And the, the challenge being... That, that's a philosopher, not a theologian who says that. The challenge being righteousness. That, that yes. term righteousness, what is it to be right. righteous? And uh, the essential distinction then between, uh, say, a pagan philosopher and a, and a Christian theologian right. slash philosopher, uh, <laughs> to not start another conversation. Anyway, the, the Christian is that, no, our righteousness is in Christ and him alone. Yes. And anything that comes from that, um, even even striving after that which God defines as righteous according mm-hmm. to His law, uh, that's going to be that's going to be a spirit's work. That's a fruit of the right. faith in Christ, and I can't take any credit for it. And maybe right. that's where the rubber really hits the road. And, well, it, we think transactionally, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the problem: is that we want everything to be this transaction. I do something for God; He does something for me. Quid pro quo, mm-hmm. right? Versus your point, righteousness in Christ is just one direction. It's one yeah. God it's serving gift. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all gift. So I guess the way I would I would recommend pastorally to overcome the tendency to to speak and think transactionally is to speak and think in the language of gift always. And even works being gift then. Yeah, absolutely. Let let God, the Holy Spirit, Christ, the Father always be the subject who's running the verbs of salvation, mm-hmm. including the fruits of faith. Yeah. Which and are I, I've suggested that, you know, maybe that's it's a parody of Reformation theology to say that that works don't save and so works are excluded and thus works don't matter. <laughs> Well, I think this too, though, is if we would say works of love, which is his point, mm-hmm. they're not just any kind of works. Nope. Specifically, love God, love your neighbor. This is the sum of the law. Yeah, so, selfless, self-giving right, love. it's selfless. So often, in my experience, the talk is works of the law, works of righteousness, good works, but not love, which allows us to then be jerks to each other. <laughs> because we're busy trying to do the works and you're not doing the works that I'm doing or you're not doing them up to my standards and I'm comparing me to you and so forth. And I find, again, in my experience, what is always absent is love. And so, as you pointed out, selfless love, not one seeking of the, itself. One of the fuzziest terms for me, at least, or at least yeah. the way it's been applied, is to speak the truth in love. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, what exactly do you mean by that? Yes. Um, it doesn't, like you say, does it mean I can be a jerk to you because it's the truth and that's love? That's tough love, mm, I guess. Is right, tough love. <laughs> yeah, scared straight. Uh, <laughs> no, not necessarily, I think. I, I, we're not going to set aside the truth and we're not going to say that there's more than one truth or you can have your truth and I have my truth. Right. Because that's false too. Uh, but how does, it, how does this work out? Well, let's go to Jesus, right? Jesus does a perfect, a, a great ex- way of explaining this in a perfect way, which is what? What's the sum of the law? He asked the lawyer. Love God, love your neighbor. Great. Let me tell you a little parable about a, a Samaritan. Mm. That's it in a nutshell. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It means go read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that's all you need to know. Or give away everything you have to the poor. Right. Or there's that, right? Crank it up to 11. Just give all your stuff away and follow me. Let's see how. See if you can go with that. <laughs> right. So then thesis 14, this same faith causes us to be ashamed of having offended such a kind and generous father. Hmm. You call that the backspin of the gospel, right? Yeah. Well, I think this is also, if you look at the distinction between shame-based cultures and and guilt-based cultures, Mm. we tend at present, at least in our church body, to be guilt-based. We like to guilt each other versus shame-based, which is actually a positive thing, not just a negative thing. It's not monolithic. Mm. They're actually, actually a good form or function of shame in a culture. That is, I when your works are exposed. Well, you don't want to let down or fail those mm. who depend on you. You're ashamed when you 
misspeak or you speak in a way that hurts someone mm -hmm. or is unkind, you are ashamed when you don't show up for someone who depends on you to show up. That's not a bad kind of shame. That's good. It pushes you to be better, to be more loving. And also covering others' shame does the right. same. Right. But to be ashamed of having offended God, the Father, because he's so kind and generous is not a negative. It's mm. a positive. Just read the Psalms. Read the penitential Psalms. Every confession of sin or shame is because the psalmist is essentially saying, I didn't confess my sin to you. I tried to hide my sin from you. Here are the consequences. Your hand was heavy upon me. When I confessed my sins, you were kind and you were gracious and quick to forgive me. Mm. A shame-based culture does not, like I said, have to be monolithically negative. In fact, I am deeply involved with a shame-based culture that is profoundly positive because it is, I don't want to let these people around me down. So I'm mm. going to bring my best. Mm. Mm. I'm going to try. And when I do fail, I'm so ashamed that that's all I can think about is apologizing, asking for forgiveness, wanting to do better, improving, yeah. doing what it takes. Yeah, we've talked about that with church practices, right? Um, especially ones that are commanded by God um, as gift. <laughs> mm -hmm. And like, uh, maybe maybe it's the the sacrament, and we mm -hmm. not not necessarily talking about the rites or the practices, but maybe the frequency of it. And you look at it and say, I mean, how doesn't it bring? It does bring shame. It should bring shame upon it should. you. It usually brings individual guilt or lack thereof. Right. Well, I just, we, we don't do it all the time because it, it wouldn't be special. Mm. Or I just don't feel like I should be coming up there today, Pastor, because of X, Y, and Z. That's guilt. That's not necessarily yeah. shame. Whereas the, whereas the shame of saying, you know, we could actually have the sacrament today, but yeah. we're not. And for some arbitrary reason, probably, that, <laughs> right. that we can't really figure out, just calendar or something. And, and it is interesting uh, because... We're maybe not as tuned in to shame then as we are to mm -hmm. guilt. Hmm. Well, to quote the prophet, I think at present we've we've forgotten how to blush. Mm. That there's really nothing to be ashamed of other than you disagreeing with me. Mm. We see this with with social media and different groups, social groups of if you're not with us, you're against us, and therefore we will shame you into non existence, so to speak. But there's not a lot of sense of, like I said, esprit de corps, if you want, like um, in a in a platoon or a squad or a company or something. That, yeah, that was with Jocko, cover and move, right? Right, cover and move. That a shame-based culture is if I break rank, if I run away, if I flee in fear, the the my brother to my left and my right could die, and that's my fault. And I can't live with that shame, and therefore I'll die before I let them die. Hmm. That I'd rather... It's like I was explaining to someone the other day that when you there's a there's a certain bridge that I crossed mentally where I made up my mind and now it just is there. You can break my body, but I will never quit mentally. And once you cross that, there's a certain clarity that comes with that of I'm not going to quit mentally because one, it would be to let myself down after all the work I put into this. Mm. But likewise, and almost more importantly, actually. I would be letting down the, my my training partners, my teammates, my students. Right. Well, that's a lack of integrity, which is an, yes, which will bring great shame upon you. Right. Well, whether it, you recognize it or not, it's there. I was going to say it. It should, <laughs> and inevitably it must. We call that just like airmailing it in. Yes. And 
I don't know, you and I, I, I just can't do that. No. I mean... Not anymore, I can't. I used to. It's, and I used to say, <laughs> I guess I used to think, you know, it would bring guilt, I would feel guilty that like I'm right. wasting somebody else's time. And maybe that's true. I mean, that does mm-hmm. fall under the commandment of stealing, right? Um, but it's also just shame because you, you've actually, you're hurting right. yourself. Right. Well, maybe that's a good place uh, to discuss the overlap because we've kind of been jumping back and forth mm-hmm. though of, your point I think is important, so let's not pass over it, is as a Christian in relation to, let's say, my instructor who tapped me and said, you're going to teach Muay Thai now, and here's why. Now, I was ashamed to teach it because I didn't believe that I was the right person to teach. Mm. And he said to me, Mary, matter of factly, I don't need the best fighter to teach Muay Thai. There's lots of great fighters I could ask, but they're not good teachers. Mm-hmm. What I need is the best teacher to teach Muay Thai, and that's you. Now, he could have said, well, there's nobody else, so you'll do, which would be a demoralizing statement, right? <laughs> it's not something that inspires you to show up and be prepared and do your best. But the way he phrased it of, you're the best person to teach, that statement actually focuses me on not failing him, not letting him down, and therefore not letting the class down because he said, you're the best person to teach the class now. Yeah, whether intuitively or not, he recognized that um, you've been brought to that moment vocationally. You've been prepared to, to right. serve there. Mm-hmm. So then as a Christian then, as you to your point, to then show up unprepared, to not to not live with you know, into that integrity that I hold myself, that standard that I hold myself to, I also recognize as a Christian though, to your point, this is stealing from my instructor, the gym, my students, my training partners. So as a Christian, I can recognize this isn't just a social moray. This isn't just a social virtue, but rather this is actually the God wove creation together. Yeah. Don't steal. So therefore, this is not just a matter of social mores, but rather natural law. Mm. And to then strive to as much as is possible in one hand, to live according to the law of nature, which is a stoic teaching, but simultaneously then as a Christian to recognize, I also live in the other kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness, which also then opens up the reality of sin, death, the devil, Mm. true righteousness in a godly sense, the true meaning of natural law or just the law in general, it's an overlap, right? It's not one or the other, but we live with the both and of left and right hand kingdoms, sure. first and second articles. And that even plays out in the church properly because the church Hopefully. itself sits in both kingdoms. Right. So, I don't know, you're walking up to church and you see something that really brings shame upon you. Something that's been right. neglected, right? Not the right. flowers or whatever it is. And... It's, it, you should be ashamed because that's your church. That's your, right. you know, this is your responsibility uh, as a member right. there. Uh, if you're physically able, you know, to, to take care of that problem, take care of it. Is God holding it against you? No, because that's the next, that's the word you're going to hear when mm-hmm. you walk in that building. You are forgiven. Right. And so th- that <laughs> sets you free from like, I'm going to do this out of duty or obligation or make God happy or, to, uh, right. or at least appease him right. um, because that's already been done. Yeah. In Christ. And so now uh, you can do it. And also that helps a lot with this uh, performance anxiety, as I've described it, you know, in the church where it's like, we have to do the best job possible or we have to do more than what we can possibly do. That's actually where Mm. it goes usually. Right. Like, no, you don't. Right. You don't need to be ashamed of being, say, a small church or a church Mm -hmm. with limited resource or, um, 
you know, with facilities that have issues, uh, right. be attentive to them, do the best you can with them, with the gifts mm -hmm. that you've been given. Right. And, and, but don't, you don't need to hold that against you. So there's that delicate tension, I suppose. It's nice and delicate. It's a dichotomy. I don't, it's a dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, where it's like, okay, I should be ashamed of things that are in, in neglect or poor repair, you know, right. for example. Um, on, the, on the other hand, um, I shouldn't feel guilty right. if I'm doing what I can do with what I've been given. Right. And yeah. so long as the gospel and the gifts are present, <laughs> the flowers and the altar are a subsidiary concern. Or the flowers. If the gospel flower. and the gifts yeah. are absent, then they become a primary concern. Ah, I see. And they will consume you because now you're majoring in minors. It'll be ev everything will be about, you know, the leaky roof or whatever. It's like it is. the illuminated manuscripts. The monks couldn't read the words, so they worshipped and venerated the 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 the, the pictures. The, yeah, they well they made them in these iconic pictures because they worshipped the words rather than or the letters. They worshipped the letters because they couldn't actually read the language. Mm. Likewise, mm. then if we can't if we don't have the gospel and the gifts present for us, the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. We're not righteous in Christ, and therefore, where do we find our righteousness? Like you said, everything has to be perfect. And maybe, maybe here, you know, running with Melanchthon, thesis fourteen, being ashamed by the generosity of, uh, or or being offended by the kind and generous generous father, you know that that is what's happening when you see the flower bed out in front of the church. Right, you know, has issues. Is that you do believe that this is all a gift to you? This mm -hmm. congregation, its history, its legacy, everything that right. you receive there is a gift to you. Um, and and so that when you, in turn, neglect that in some way, or even just by absenting yourself, mm -hmm. it does bring shame upon you, right? Because right. it's it's like saying, uh, you know, Grandma, thanks for the cake, but I'm not really hungry, right? <laughs> uh, well, unless you don't eat cake, another story. That's a whole other story. And to your point, then thesis fifteen. Therefore, it causes us to abhor our flesh with its evil desires, mm -hmm. which would be why I don't eat sugar. Because mm. <laughs> my flesh says, that's a really dumb idea. No, my flesh says more. Put more of that in this hole. <laughs> well, at the same time, you're highly attuned to it now. And you yes. recognize your body has instantaneous negative reaction. <laughs> exactly. When the sugar hits your palate. Sometimes cata catastrophic consequences. <laughs> it's like, I don't want that in my body. No. See you later. I abhor my flesh with its evil desires. Mm. And therefore, what do I do? I, as Paul says, I discipline my flesh. Mm, right. Yeah. And I think this is, I'm not going to go off on a long tangent, but I do think that the theology of the body, which Roman Catholics have dealt with in the past, somewhat well and somewhat not well, is something we could definitely revisit in the present tense, especially in the United States. Is mm. that our body, our minds, our internal organs, these are gifts. God gave us life. And there are literally billions of people in cemeteries throughout history who would trade places with us in a second. Yeah. And yet we treat our bodies and our minds and our health and our wellness as if it's just a garbage can that mm. we're supposed to fill up and then dump out once a week. Of course, the maxim is true, garbage in, garbage out. Yes. Now, yes, can it be pushed to the extreme in the other direction? 100%. I have friends who are CrossFitters. I can tell you. Who worship or, the body. Sure. They worship, you know, the 4% body fat crowd. I get it. I respect you. I wish. But, <laughs> but every once in a while, eat a donut, people. Eat a donut. And that's coming from a guy who trains five days a week. Yeah. Uh, as our friend says, you know, eat like you're baptized. Right. Eat like you're baptized. But it just, it's a point that I, I find, uh, again, this is my piety. Here's my, here's my, my weak underbelly mm. is that we put so much stress on doctrine in the abstract, or we put so much stress on what we confess in church on Sundays, for example, mm -hmm. we put so much stress on living a virtuous or Christian life or a godly life. And yet 
we completely neglect our bodies and our minds. And that's something. And tr- and treat it as if there's no consequence to us in a first article sense or even a second article sense. Hmm. If you fill your body full of garbage and therefore your mind is garbage, how then are you clear and sober in matters of doctrine? So maybe the ancient practice of you know, periodic fasting. Fasting, exactly. Is, is wise. I was reading... Um, uh, Which is also a practice of mental discipline. I fasted all day yesterday. Well, that was the and thing. Was, I, I read a book, a fiction book, and the, and the, the guy's being imprisoned. And uh, again, it's fiction, but I think it's, it's wise. And he fasts for five days. He's wrongfully imprisoned. And, yeah. and when he's uh, assaulted by um, a jailkeeper, um, yeah. he can overcome him even though he's far underweight and, and yeah, right. underpowered. He's skilled. He has some skill in boxing. But mm-hmm. you know, he can overpower him easily and quickly even after fasting for five days. And like, how does right. that happen? Well, he has clarity of mind. Right. And you know? if you think that you're mentally strong because you can withstand certain physical rigors, try going without eating for 24 hours. And you'll see how addicted you are to just (laughs) food. How much you're a slave to your passions. Oh, dude, I was craving chicharrones last night so bad. (laughs) Oh, that reminds me of a couple years ago. There's no calories in chicharrones. There's no carbs. I can eat chicharrones. It's like, that's quitting. You're quitting. Don't quit. (laughs) But uh, to abhor. Then you're like, is it nine o'clock? Can I go to bed yet? Can I go to bed now? (laughs) So the law and the gospel actually Mm -hmm. uh, show the flesh for what it is. Yes. And then... um, by the spirit, then we we actually, like you say, discipline that flesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say, you know, go to hell in a sense, but also, you know, I'm going to hold you down. Go to hell actually would be against the theology of the body, right? Right. Where the body is a gift to you, um, right? Not to be ashamed of inherently. Right. Um, the shame comes from from sin that is committed by in the body. But also recognize that the body is the source, as Paul says, the flesh is the source of all evil desires. Therefore, discipline your flesh. Because I guarantee you when the devil comes at you, and I'm speaking from pastoral experience, yep, listening to confessions, right? Not myself. Well, myself personally, obviously, too, because mm-hmm. it's just universally applicable. But pastorally, when people come to me, it's always second table of the law. It's always fleshly afflictions. Yep. Yeah, the, Lust. The, a lie attached sloth, to a fleshly yeah. desire. Mm-hmm. Right. Greed. Envy. So then thesis 16, human reason neither fears God nor believes in him, but is utterly ignorant of God and despises him. <laughs> We know this from Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Luke 16, 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Here, Christ points out that the human heart does not believe the word of God. This madness of the human heart is what Solomon railed at in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, (laughs) as can be seen from chapter 8, verse 11, because... Sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the sons of men is fully set to do evil. Somewhat ironic coming from Solomon. Right? Of all people. Of, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he knew the heart of, of men all too right. well. At least is well, what's evident from the text. Right. I think that's why uh, Ecclesiastes is so important to the rabbis, that that be the, the, the period at the end of Solomon's life. So that they can say, see all this other stuff he did? Yeah, this is where he ends up. Oh, at. is that what they do? They date it late. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. Cold but I don't. Like. I don't think like Chronicles really agrees with that. Right. Assessment. Hmm. Mm-hmm. He did not depart to be with his fathers. It, it, it is nice in a very structured, linear. Here's part one. Here's part two. Here's part three. Sons. Oh, I got you. Okay. It's it's like the, how the rabbis treat um, Manasseh. 
that, you know, Master does all this evil stuff. He's dragged away into captivity and slavery. He comes back, he repents. He just wants to, you know, work in his garden. And the rabbi was like, nah, we don't think so. Hmm. We don't like what he did. We're not going to give him a pass. So do they have kind of a progressive view of things? Things are getting better. Modern rabbis do, I think. Well, mm-hmm. at least I like to read the Reformed rabbis because they have a revisionist bent on exegesis. It's fun for me to read them and their opinions. Like I was right because, like, if you read the history of of Israel in exile, right, moving, or moving through, uh, you know, the wilderness of Sinai, you're like, mm, they don't really get better, right? They're delivered by God, and they actually seem to seem be to get actually worse, worse, yeah. yeah. And then the law comes from Sinai. Mm, and then it gets worse yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, but again, we by nature, uh, we old Adam sinners actually crave slavery. And when we're given our freedom by God, mm. we whine and complain and try and find that slavery, that's that slave master as quickly as possible. Well, I guess there's a kind of creaturely comfort in that. Oh, yeah. We're yeah. addicted to what's safe and comfortable. What we know, what we right. expect. Yeah. It's like uh, one guy I listened to said, we, we, we crave change, but we're addicted to what is safe and what is predictable. I think that's true. And, and yeah. you know, because not knowing tomorrow, the flesh uh, that results in anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, worry, doubt. So because the human heart is utterly ignorant of God, <laughs> it turns aside to its own counsels and desires and sets itself up in the place of God. Yeah. Yeah. That's the original sin, to want to be God in God's place. You will be like God. Yeah. But not God. That's the problem. <laughs> Close. Right, close. As close as the devil is. Right. Yes, there you go. Verse 18, or thesis 18, when God confounds the human heart through the law with a sense of sin, it does not yet know God. That is, it does not know his goodness and therefore hates God as if he were a tormentor. We Mm. would call this the hidden God. Mm. Therefore, when God comforts and consoles the human heart through the gospel by showing it Christ, then finally it knows God for it recognizes both his power and his goodness. This is what Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24 means, quote, but let him who glories, glory in this, that he knows me. I think that's important. You mentioned the hidden God and the revealed God is the other half of that. Yeah. And that God, how does God want to be known by you? Does he want to be known by the law? What God do you meet if you approach God by the law alone? You meet the God of the whirlwind. Yeah, and the fire and the destruction. Right, yeah. It tears mountains apart. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, predictable, uh, <laughs> right. but not, not all that comforting. Right. Hmm. So then off of that, thesis 20, the heart of him who has believed the gospel and come to know the goodness of God is now fortified so that it trusts in God and fears him and consequently abhors the thoughts of the human heart. Peter said very fittingly in Acts chapter 15, verse 9, that hearts are cleansed by faith. Hmm. And thesis 22, mercy is revealed through the promises. 23, sometimes material things are promised and at other times spiritual. Hmm. First article of gifts, second yeah. article of gifts. Yeah. For thesis 24, in the law, material things such as the land of Canaan, the kingdom are promised. Well, there you go. And right. thesis 25 then, the gospel is the promise of grace or the forgiveness of sins through Christ. Yeah. So, uh, before we move on, the 24, the, the material gifts of the land of Canaan, this is like the fourth commandment, the law with a, with a promise, Luther says in the catechism, right? Yes, right. Where it's like, it'll go well with you if you obey your parents. And almost always, that's true. <laughs> they say, don't touch the stove, and 
you know, it's a good it's idea. On, yeah. yeah, it is a good idea. You know, don't play with guns. You'll shoot your eye out. Right. And uh, that's generally actually true. Right. <laughs> so listen to your parents. Uh, that's a material benefit to you. It benefits mm -hmm. the body. But it's not a spiritual promise. Right. He so did say that sometimes material things are promised, other times spiritual, but he's not saying in the law. That was back in right. 23. Right. The law promises material things. Mm -hmm. The gospel promises spiritual. Right. Capital S. So that's also then, we could use this to respond to something like prosperity gospel. You know, where yes. God will make you healthy, wealthy, and, and prosperous. Right. God bought my Cadillac. Mm. I want it. I need a jet, man. Right. So then thesis 26, all material promises are dependent on the promise of Christ. I feel like we should expand hmm. that one. Yeah. Like this that. is uh, the way I explain this thesis, or I pointed out in our own practice, is the way that we terminate our collects. Sure. All of them end through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right. Who reigns and lives and reigns. Sometimes we had that part. Right. It's always right. well, through at, Jesus uh, Christ our Lord, namely his death for us, for yeah. forgiving us. Look at also the litany, mm. the historical litany. Same thing. We pray for all kinds of material benefits. Sure. But we begin and end with Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Namely, the promise of grace and forgiveness of sins is the proof that God right. well, it, is the it God for us. It also allows us, or if you want to, it, it sets us free in the present tense to bear all things. Oh, true. It, it allows us to bear our crosses, our afflictions, our struggles with that patience and endurance that Paul talks about. Yeah, health or sickness. Right, you know, exactly. Poverty or wealth. I have a wedding coming up in about a month, and this is essentially what I preach in the, the marriage sermon too of, these are your vows. Mm -hmm. Now, you can either run the, the marriage in the way of Christ and forgiveness, or you can run your marriage in the way of the world in love. Conditional love, obviously, or conditional forgiveness. Mm -hmm. But love is a consequence of forgiveness, not the other way around. And so too often, I think we teach married couples, especially young married couples, it's all about love. You gotta just gotta love each other. No, you don't. You gotta forgive each other. That is actually love. Because that is the ultimate expression of love is forgiveness in Christ's name. It's well, like I tell this. people too, the most loving thing you can do is to bring your neighbor to church to hear the gospel. Yeah. Well, what happens when your spouse um, can no longer, you know, in an earthly sense, love you the way that, that you want them to love you? Correct. You know, whatever that looks like. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. they're um, paralyzed or something. Right. Um, or, or disabled in some way. And you, mm -hmm. you say, well, you know, so they can't serve you. They can't work. I mean, right. you actually end up having to serve them. Right. Uh, now, is that, you know, that marriage, you know, the, the vows actually make it, <laughs> I think the vows are helpful here, is to actually say, um, that's not the point. Right, right. You know, it's sickness or health, it's it's, it's poverty or weakness, whatever mm -hmm. it looks like, it's strength or weakness, I should say. Um, it's till death do you part. That's for each other's benefit, whatever that ends up looking like, mm -hmm. which we don't know, which is what the vows are implying. You don't know where this is going to go. And you're saying, I'm with you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stay with you. Yeah. And how can you do that? <laughs> By your own reason, strength, ability. You can't. Right. Yeah. And that's where your sermon point comes in. Where, yeah. Yeah. It's only going to be through forgiveness that any of this is going to make any sense or work. Right. Hmm. So let's, so we're going to run a little late. So I'll just rip through these last theses to wrap oh. it up. Thesis 27 then. The first promise was a promise of grace or Christ. To say grace is to say Christ. It is found in Genesis 3, verse 15, he shall bruise your head. This means that the seed of Eve will crush the kingdom of the serpent, plotting against our heel, that is Christ, will crush sin and death. 
This was renewed in the promise made to Abraham, quote, by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Thesis 29, therefore, since Christ was to be born of the descendants of Abraham, the promises added to the law about the possession of the earth, etc., were obscure promises of the Christ who was to come. For those material things were promised to the people until the promised seed should be born, lest they perish, and in order that, in the meantime, God might indicate his mercy by material things and might thereby exercise the faith of his people. By Christ's birth, the promises to mankind were consummated, and the forgiveness of sins, for which Christ had to be born, was openly made known. Mm. Thesis 31, the promises of the Old Testament are signs of the Christ to come, and also of the promise of grace to be broadcast at some future time. The gospel, the very promise of grace, has already been made known. Thesis 32, just as that man does not know God who knows only that he exists, but does not know either his power or his mercy, so also that man does not believe who believes only that God exists, but does not believe both in his power and his mercy. And finally, thesis 33, he really believes, therefore, who looking beyond the threats believes the gospel also, who fixes his face on the mercy of God or on Christ, the pledge of divine mercy. So much on faith. We shall add certain things on love a little later <laughs> after we have dealt with the difference between law and gospel. Seems like he already did, Testaments. but he's going to do more, huh? Right, yeah. Let me dive into the Bible now. I know I haven't spent enough time quoting the Bible, so I'm just going to talk about the Bible. Oh, that's great. He knows a, lo- uh, he knows a lot about the gospel. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, for those of you in my congregation who listen to this podcast, uh, if you're wondering what we're going to do for adult Bible study the first Sunday I'm back, you just heard it. Yeah, nice. <laughs> we're definitely going to go through these I did, theses. This, I think we said that. This would be a great uh, teaching tool. Yes. Um, even individually, but but in a in a larger setting like that, in a class, that would be great. Absolutely. I, in fact, I would be motivated and, and am motivated. I'm probably going to have these printed up in a pamphlet. Oh, nice. Well, we, and and this is, um, you know, it's within the times of Melanchthon that, that theses were meant to be conversation starters. Correct. And so a, a long list like this, as long as it is, it's it's meant to actually lead a, lead you through and think of implications and right. you know, and applications. So it's good. Yeah, and if you want a quick and dirty supplement to the catechisms, yeah, there you this go. This is pretty decent. Well, we were to, able to get seven weeks out of it. There you go, <laughs> easily without easily. trying. I like it. Too hard. So I think little little uh, advertisement for what's coming up for the rest of the summer. I think we're going to dive back into Nagel. That if was you're the amenable plan. to that. Nagel on the Lord's Supper, possibly. Oh, I like it. Several weeks or months, depending. Yeah. Dr. Nagel's still with us here. Yeah. Yes. Let's and, do it. Uh, yeah, so it's a good time to do it. All right. So thank you so very much for listening and giving us your time and attention. We truly appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed the series that we did here on Phil and Melanchthon. Go buy the Lochi if you haven't already. It's mm-hmm. a gold mine, as we keep saying. And you can't do much better as far as Lutheran theology goes. I don't think so. All right. Come back next week for a brand new episode. We love you. Peace. Peace.